Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Last week, Marie discussed the deadly cockamamie scheme of Catiline in the late Roman Republic. This week's episode is a continuation of our study into the origins of Judeo-Christian civilization. This week, we will be studying a brief history of Christianity up to the 4th century and looking at its impact on Western civilization. Previously, we talked about how the history of Judaism affected Western civilization. We particularly focused on how it introduced the values of an ordered, predictable God and universe. It taught that all men are created equal, and it illustrated that men are free to choose how to live their lives. Along with this notion comes the idea that people are free to choose their form of government. We saw these principles in action as the ancient Jews were given the choice whether or not to follow the Mosaic Law, Moses, Joshua, the Judges, King Saul, and King David. In each case, the will of the people was paramount. These were revolutionary ideas in the milieu of this time period where gods were fickle beings and the power of kings was absolute. Christianity started off as a sect of Judaism, and it continued to build and enforce these ideas we talked about previously. It also introduced new ideas that we'll talk about in this episode. Namely, Christianity heavily emphasized caring for the poor and needy and creating organizations to accomplish that, and Christianity was an evangelizing universal religion that actively sought new converts. Christianity began in the first century with Jesus Christ. He was born in 4 BC in Bethlehem, a city about five miles away from Jerusalem. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Redeemer of the world. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with this viewpoint and may even feel similarly. To give our listeners a fresh perspective on Jesus Christ's life that may not have been heard before, I'm bringing on to the podcast a guest historian named Flavius Josephus. Josephus was born a Jewish Pharisee around 38 AD. He would later go on to become a general in the Jewish revolt, then a Roman prisoner, then a prophet, a Roman historian, and Jewish apologist. Consequently, he is one of the best sources on first century Judaism. Much of what we know about this era comes from his great works. He wrote about all the major Jewish events and sects, and Jesus Christ and Christianity were no exception. Josephus died in 100 AD, but he agreed to come back to life to participate on this podcast. Josephus, hello. Please tell our listeners what you have to say about Jesus Christ. Hello, Doug. Uh, Let me share what I wrote in my book, Antiquities of the Jews, Book 18, Chapter 3. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross. Those who had first come to love him did not cease loving him. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things, and a thousand other marvels about him, 
and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Well, thank you, Josephus. I truly love this perspective you've shared. It's fascinating to see what a first century Jew thought about these Christians and this Christ Jesus. Josephus, he really gave us a nice summary. Christ was more than a man, a worker of miracles, a teacher of truth, wrongfully condemned to die on a cross, and restored to life on the third day. A key part of the life of Jesus that had a profound effect on Western civilization was his care for the poor and the needy. Jesus often made it a point to visit society's outcasts, tax collectors, widows, adulterers, lepers, beggars, invalids, and Samaritans. Christ made it clear that this was the focus of his mission when he quoted the prophet Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Upon Jesus' ascension back to heaven, his disciples maintained this tradition of caring for the poor and the needy in the early church. One of the early church leaders, James, explains, quote, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we see the disciples living up to this charge. In the books of Acts, chapter 4, the apostles establish a Christian community. Quote, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many owned lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had any need. Close quote. However, as the church grew, tensions began to rise up from within the community. In Acts chapter 6, we read how the Greek members of the community complained against the Jewish members because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. This was very concerning to the twelve apostles, but they were also feeling overwhelmed. They remarked, It is not right that we should neglect preaching the word of God in order to wait on tables. And so, the apostles appointed seven deacons to run the community and make sure everyone got fed. It seems that these deacons were successful. And as the community grew and spread to other cities, these deacons went on to appoint others to help them. Tradition states that Philip ordained Tabitha as a deaconess to care for the widows in Joppa. We read about Tabitha in Acts chapter 9 and see how she took care of widows, Christian and non-Christian alike. She took care of them so well that even the non-Christian widows were begging Peter to bring her back to life after she had died. And Peter actually did. Other traditions developed to care for the poor and needy. One of these was the Agape Feast. This was a potluck that the early Christians shared with the community before partaking of the sacrament, or communion. Paul referenced this feast in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 19-22, to and Jude talks about this feast in verse 12 of his epistle. In the centuries after the New Testament, this tradition continued. Christians also took fantastic care of the sick and the dead. 
In Egypt in the mid-200s, the bishop of Alexandria, Dionysus, was distraught that so many Christians had died from a recent plague. Mournfully, he wrote the reasons why. Quote, Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing in themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen. Dionysus continues about the treatment of the sick post-mortem. With willing hands they raised the bodies of the saints to their bosoms. They closed their eyes and mouths, carried them on their shoulders, and laid them out. They clung to them, embraced them, washed them, and wrapped them in grave clothes. Very soon the same services were done for them, since those left behind were constantly following those gone before. These Christians were so intent on caring for the sick and the dead that they didn't care that they themselves had caught the plague. A few decades later, Emperor Julian also wrote about Christian generosity towards the sick and poor. He was a pagan, and when he became emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, in 361 AD, he attempted to assert the dominance of paganism over other faiths. His success was limited, and he lamented the fact in a letter. Before we read the letter, you should know that he refers to Christians as promoting atheism. But what he means by that is that Christians are stopping people from believing in the pagan gods, thus making them atheists towards all the pagan gods. All right, so here's what he wrote. Quote, It is Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. It is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. This is remarkable. An emperor complaining that the Christians are supporting his pagans better than the government and the other pagans are. It is abundantly clear that for the first few centuries of Christianity, they were a very, very giving and kind group of people. This kindness had a profound softening effect on Western civilization. Dr. Bart Ehrman writes, Modern sensitivities, values, and ethics have all been radically affected by the Christian tradition. In the pre-Christian culture of dominance, those with power are expected to assert their will over those who are weaker. With such an ideology, one would not expect to find government welfare programs to assist weaker members of society, the poor, homeless, hungry, or oppressed. One would not expect to find hospitals to assist the sick, injured, or dying. One would not expect to find private institutions of charity designed to help those in need. The Roman world did not have any such things. A second unique feature of Christianity that impacted Western civilization was its belief that it was one true religion for everyone, and that Christians had an obligation to spread it to the world. The Great Commission... Jesus' last words to his disciples before ascending into heaven was, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching and seeking converts was not something that Jews or the pagans of Rome believed in. Jewish author Hermann Woke writes, The idea of salvation limited to one group never had any place in the Jewish faith and has no place in it today. Judaism has never tried to save souls by converting them. It teaches that salvation lies in people's conduct before God, not in their taking of special commands that bind them to the house of Abraham. Essentially, Herman is saying that Jews don't believe everyone has to be a Jew to be saved. They believe that if you are part of Abraham's family, God has chosen you to follow special rules. Nobody else has to follow these rules, though. Similarly, for the Roman pagans, Dr. Ehrman writes, Conversion was not a widely known phenomenon. Pagan religions had almost nothing like it. They were polytheistic, and anyone who decided, as a pagan, to worship a new or a different god was never required to relinquish any former gods or their previous patterns of worship. New gods could be added and worshipped at will. Romans would frequently assimilate the gods of the people they conquered. This shows a remarkable openness of religious perspectives, and it made it possible for conquered peoples to continue living their lives with less cultural disruption. The Christians were very different from both of these faith practices. In the first six decades, known as the Apostolic Age, Christianity had spread from the Galilee to Jerusalem to Joppa to Samaria and then to Asia Minor, Greece, Macedonia, and even Rome. The locations where tradition dictates that each of the twelve apostles died gives us a little glimpse as to how far the gospel had traveled and at what speed. James was the first apostle to die. He was beheaded by King Agrippa in Jerusalem in A.D. 42. Philip, he was crucified in Heliopolis, Egypt in A.D. 54. Bartholomew was executed, but we're not sure where or how. Thomas was speared to death in India. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. James was beaten and stoned in Jerusalem in A.D. 62. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome in A.D. 68. Paul was beheaded in Rome that same year. Andrew was crucified in Patras, Greece in A.D. 69. Jude was crucified in Edessa in A.D. 72, and Simon was crucified in England in A.D. 74, and John was exiled to Patmos and disappeared around A.D. 100, thus closing the Apostolic Age. And so by the time these original twelve had died, the gospel had reached the far-flung locales of the Roman Empire and beyond. Wherever the gospel was taught, the apostles ordained bishops and presbyters to continue the ministry. Bishop just means overseer, and so these people oversaw large congregations, and presbyters were priests who helped run the congregation's daily tasks. About 70 years after the Apostolic Age, we have the first non-Christian historical source giving an extensive discussion of the Christian missionaries. This writer's name was Celsus. He was a pagan intellectual from 170 AD. Celsus hated the Christians, but in his writings, we see that the early Christians continued to follow the teachings of their master to spread the gospel and care for the poor. Celsus writes, quote, Wherever one finds a crowd of adolescent boys or a bunch of slaves or a company of fools, there will the Christian teachers be also, showing off their fine new philosophy. 
In private houses, one can see wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, and the most illiterate country bumpkins, who would not venture to voice their opinions in front of their intellectual betters. But let them get hold of children and find some gullible wives, and you will hear some preposterous statements. Celsus is obviously very elitist and biased against the Christians, but we can see that from his writings, even 140 years after Jesus, Christians are still evangelizing and are focusing their efforts on orphans, the poor, the uneducated, slaves, outcasts, and women. That's not to say intellectuals didn't join, as there were many of those as well. In the 3rd century, we see the result of all this. Cornelius, bishop of Rome, wrote that at the time his congregation had 46 presbyters, each with a congregation of their own, 7 deacons, 4 subdeacons, 42 acolytes, 52 exorcists, readers, and doorkeepers, and 1,500 widows and other needy persons under church support. And so, in a city with a million people, this church had 155 clergy and was providing charity to 1,500 people. A church historian, Harnack, estimates, based on this data, that the church in Rome had approximately 30 to 50,000 persons at this time. This was about 5% of the population of Rome. By the end of this century, 10% of the Roman Empire would be Christian. That would be about 2.5 million adherents. But by the next century, the church would grow even bigger. The beginning of the 4th century gave the church a huge boost in converts and popularity from one very interesting event. On October 28, 312 AD, the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantine, converted to Christianity. Christianity, it didn't become the official religion of the empire at this time. That would be in another eight decades but it did make Christianity a legal and unprosecutable faith in the empire, and it granted it a special favored status, and with this came additional wealth and prestige. We will study more about the interesting life of Constantine and Christianity in the Byzantine Empire in future episodes. Now, by the end of the 300s, Christianity's spread was still a bit uneven. Christians made up over half of the population in areas of the empire near Paul's original stomping grounds, places like Turkey, Armenia, and Cyprus. Parts of Egypt also became very Christian, like Alexandria. By the end of the 4th century, estimates have 90% of the population of Alexandria and Egypt as Christian. Other parts of the empire were not nearly as Christian, but had large and influential congregations in big cities such as Antioch and cities in Lower Italy and Spain. Meanwhile, areas such as Christianity's origins in Jerusalem, and also areas such as Phoenicia, Arabia, the upper parts of Italy, Gaul, and Germany, Christian communities were pretty sparse if they even existed at all. But from these humble beginnings, Christianity would continue to spread across the empire until it ultimately became the dominant force of the West. It would become the state-sanctioned religion in many of these kingdoms, states and empires that would exist in Europe and Asia Minor. We will discover more about Christianity's history in future episodes. Unfortunately, this concludes part two of my Judeo-Christian series.
this episode, we learned about how Christianity spread from a few followers in Judea to becoming the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. We learned how two key tenets of Christianity, caring for the poor and needy and spreading the gospel, impacted Western civilization. To learn more about this topic, check out the History of Christianity podcast with Bertie Pearson and the Triumph of Christianity book by Bart Ehrman. Also check out Antiquities by Josephus. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.